This is Wayne Jernell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, sometimes I wish I was a student in your classes. I think it'd be fun. Thank you. I, I mean, I feel like I'd learn a lot. I feel like you'd get me to think about like, you know, important things, right? I mean, I think I, I feel like I've, I could learn a lot from you. In my introduction class, I did get into a very riveting discussion. I guess not really a discussion. It was more of a mini rant about the French Revolution and how sometimes messed up it was. And I think they liked it. Yeah. I'm, the ones that I could see. Well, and of course, social studies teachers like want to actually keep learning social studies, right? But as you know, I'm a bit of a talker. So I do have a question for you. I'm curious. What is your your method kind of for having discussions in your class? Like what do discussions look like in Michael Milton's class? That's interesting because we're actually talking a lot about that right now at my department. Like what makes a good discussion? So there have been times that I feel like where we've like introduced starting with a statement and then using evidence from information that they've gathered. So typically like we're preparing for something. And then they kind of like restate the statement in a different way because we're also working on writing in that in the situation. And so it seems a little bit stilted in the beginning when we do this. But once students kind of get used to it and they're prepared with like different pieces of information, it actually works out pretty well. And in in occasionally they get they get well once they get into it they get pretty snappy. And so it becomes interesting because I really want them to focus, particularly if we're having like a, a discussion about something we've covered. I want them to be able to kind of like cite and use evidence uh, in that discussion. And that's been, been working well, I think. But again, the first few times or the first time, it's a little bit stilted. Yeah. Well, the, hey, that sounds like very much like C3 framework type stuff, right? Like we, we have some good questions, we have some sources and evidence, and, and then we try to kind of deliberate on them, right? And allow people, you know, the opportunity to use evidence and kind of have meaningful arguments about, you know, in worthwhile questions in history, right? Was the French Revolution successful? Oh, yeah, I've been pondering that myself. So in, in high school, I, I had a religion teacher who said that opinions are like, um, for lack of a better word, a-holes. Everyone has one and everyone thinks each other stinks. So it's, it was, he was very, very colorful. And so I, I tried to kind of focus or move away from just like opinions on things. And I really want them to have like a, uh, a fact-based discussion. I mean, mm-hmm. so like preparation is important for them to kind of look into things and think about counter arguments. And so that has been helpful, but you know, I'm always looking for ways to improve and try different yeah. things. Yeah. I think, I feel like when I was in the classroom, I didn't have a good method for doing this. I didn't have a good grounding of like what I wanted to do. I, I've more recently, and this is probably afforded that I get to talk to you all the time and I get to read stuff. I've, I've been thinking a lot about whose questions we ask, right? Like mm. whose questions are we asking in social studies, which pertains to like whose histories are we studying, whose perspectives are we centering? 
And, but it's a challenge. It's a real shift, I think, because so often our standards kind of tend to dictate that for us almost um, and make it harder to really explore those. But I think those kind of pedagogies are like the things we should be thinking about, right? Those like larger, who, who are we centering and, and how and, you know, what type of evidence and whose evidence and what to what, ex, you know, what end? I don't know. I liked the uh, Genevieve Capri talked about the Let's Talk frameworks where you're really, mm -hmm. in, that, that was in episode 100, where she talked about her framework to really engage in different opinions on topics. So this way, instead of saying like, I don't believe in X, like the death penalty, you're looking more at, you know, this group of uh, does not like death or does not support the death penalty because this group does support the death penalty because, and so you're kind of moving away from like the personal is a way to kind of like, I mean, I, I would listen to the episode, but it, it just allows students to, I guess, take more chances and learn more about more about different perspectives going into things. Yeah. And I've been asking my students to, my teacher candidates to really think about also whose perspectives are often marginalized and who's most vulnerable mm -hmm. in different current events. And one of our fellow instructors at UNT, Dr. Alicia Brown, and she suggested you know, looking at the California wildfires, a lot of kids are going to be interested in that. But she specifically right off the bat said, let's look at it from the perspective of prison laborers who are being asked to be firefighters. Like, what's that oh, like? Yeah. And I was like, I was like, you know, and that's a real skill, I think, to kind of reorient and consider like whose perspective are we looking at these from and why? Because like the general like kind of partisan discussions in our society, I find like not to always be as fulfilling or meaningful in the classroom. But when I, we really explore you know, um, perspectives of people who, who I think really need us to understand them, understand their perspectives and, and, and you know, amplify their voices. It, to me, takes social studies to kind of a more ju justice-oriented place. That's interesting. I, we recently got into a big discussion about the election and talking about the election in class. And they said, we got to make sure we talk about both sides. And that made me very angry. I was like, mm -hmm. look, like there are multiple sides to things. Like if you're like, we can't just have an, uh, this or this, like we need to really look at the nuance and different perspectives and different opinions because we have this really polarized society. And if we just talk about things as you good, I bad, so probably the other way around, then we are uh, really <laughs> doing a big disservice, but it's important. I don't know why yeah. I make everyone a cave, cave person. person. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but like, you know, it's important to look at, you know, a wide variety of perspectives and appreciate the, appreciate and bring in the nuance in, in getting different perspectives rather than just, you know, like the, the political parties, I think is, is very important. Well, if we wanted to bring in somebody to manipulate, you know, the perspectives, we could bring in Caveman Lawyer. Um, that's a 1990s <laughs> SNL reference for anyone that has not seen those skits. Uh, they're worth watching. But we are going to actually bring in somebody who really would, I think, will uh, add a lot of wisdom and help us think about, you know, the different ways we talk about things in classrooms and the different pedagogies we use. So we would like to welcome into the podcast, uh, Dr. Melissa Gibson. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for having us join you <laughs> at your uh, evening. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Gibson, can you tell us a little bit about your background in education? Sure. So I'm currently an assistant professor at Marquette University in the College of Education, primarily working in uh, teacher education, but we are a department of ed policy and leadership. So I also work in those areas. 
I just want to tell you that I have wandered around the Marquette College of Education before. My wife and I were in Milwaukee, and I love to, like, wander campuses, and the college is oh. open, and I saw you guys, you have a little, like, classroom that you, I'm guessing, do practice of teaching in, and so I got to see that, and someone was in there and showed me around. So I have been to your cool. campus. That's all, that's all I got. Yeah. We are, I mean, we're in, like, one little hallway of people. <laughs> And that's it. We're a small little department and college on our campus, but important to the Jesuit mission of education. Prior to this, so this is my 20th school year in some kind of teaching position. I have taught middle and high school English and social studies in a variety of settings. I started out teaching at my high school alma mater, uh, an elite boarding school in the North Shore of Chicago. And then from there, I taught on the South side of Chicago in a segregated public school. From there, I moved to Wisconsin with my now partner who was starting grad school at UW-Madison. And so then for a while, I taught in a small town, former farm town in Wisconsin, I also did my doctorate at UW-Madison, and so I was a supervisor and teacher educator in Madison Public Schools, and then we moved to Mexico, and I taught at a private school in Mexico, and I shared- Where in Mexico? Sorry. No, that's okay. In Guadalajara, Mexico. Cool. Yeah. So we moved down there in 2012. We, my partner and I were both finishing our doctorates at the same time. He's also in education, so I was in curriculum and instruction. He was in educational leadership. We had just had a baby. We were both writing our dissertations. And he was like, you want to move to Mexico? <laughs> and clearly my brain wasn't functioning correctly because I was like, that sounds like a great idea. It'll be perfect for finishing my dissertation. So we moved to Mexico while I was writing my dissertation with a almost one-year-old pregnant with another baby who was born in Mexico where we worked full time and I thank the stars that we had a nanny who kept me sane and it was an amazing three years that we lived there but it was so hectic. What an adventure. <laughs> I share all those details about the places where I have taught because it really shapes how I think about education right from really elite settings to low-income, vulnerable communities, from all-white schools to all-black schools, right, to all-Spanish-speaking, to whatever the case may be. So I've, I've taught in a wide range of schools. I also, for many years, worked at Northwestern with their civic education project, leading service learning programs around the country. And those were amazing. I could, I could do a whole separate conversation about that, but all these things shape the way that I think about education. And I feel really lucky that I've gotten to have such, I think of it as like a bird's eye view on how different classrooms in different contexts and different teachers and how those social contexts impact how we think about education. So Dr. Gibson, you recently published an article in Theory and Research in Social Education titled From Deliberation to Counter Narration toward a critical pedagogy for democratic citizenship. First, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's no easy feat, and it takes a lot of time and dedication. So can you tell us a little bit about the article? Sure. So this article really grew, this iteration of it grew from an Onion article. So when <laughs> the current administration are you, began... Wait, are you talking about like from your garden or are you talking about no, the satirical? No, from, from the satirical newspaper. I'm in. Okay. 
So you, you may have seen it. It was 10 tips for staying civil while debating child prisons. And wow. there, were, there were 10 tips. And I think it was number three that said, remember that in, in the whole of history, no significant social change has happened from a discussion. And that hit me in the gut and, and hit on something that I have long been uncomfortable with in teaching in general, but especially in social studies education, which is this elevation of a deliberative discussion as the, the sine qua non of democratic practice, that that somehow is absolutely like the highest pinnacle of democracy and democratic practice. And it's pretty much the thesis of the West Wing. Yes, yes. And, you know, political theorists and, and amazing social studies scholars. And so I'm really going out on a limb here. <laughs> and instead, backing the onion for my social studies pedagogy. Oh, no. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I, I think the onion is a good place to rethink social studies. I, no. <laughs> I, I actually, you know, Dr. Gibson have had the exact same feeling. And so I suspect if you and I have had it, um, thinking about this, that we're not the only ones either. Can you tell us a little bit about what deliberation is for those who don't know? Sure. And I, there's sort of colloquial ways that we talk about deliberation, and then there are very theoretical. So the colloquial way we talk about it, whether in social studies or in the public, is that parties coming together to hash out through discussion an issue of shared concern, right? We can think of city council meetings where, where people are coming and sharing their perspectives. We, I can think of when I lived in a small condo, our condo was association would come together. You know, if we look at political theory and political scientists, deliberation or deliberative democracy is a discursive form of democracy, right? So a fancy way of saying what I just described, that we're enacting the equality of every citizen and participant by discussing and coming to shared ideas, not always consensus, but by negotiating a shared resolution to a shared social problem or social concern. There are more specific ways even that we talk about it within the social studies classroom. So Walter Parker gives a really good distinction between discussions where we are trying to understand like a Socratic discussion and deliberative discussions where we're trying to come to a resolution. And he's really clear that a deliberative discussion isn't a debate. It's not about debating and winning. It's about negotiating resolution to an issue of public concern. So, for instance, if there was like a poster that someone didn't want to see, a win-win-win would be to wear the poster as a shirt. <laughs> but this way, the other person would see it. I yeah. apologize. This was an office episode. Perfect. It was a popular show in the, in the aughts. Yes. <laughs> I, I have watched some office, but I don't remember that episode. So, <laughs> oh, it's it's actually it's it's a classic mm -hmm. episode. To stay on the office, right? We would uh, possibly, you know, debate the how we're addressing rabies as a, and bat induced rabies as a society, right? That would be like an issue we would deliberate on whether we're taking the there's could be pros and cons whether we're dedicating the proper resources towards addressing that social injustice that people suffer from, right? Would that be another office-based example of deliberation? Yes. And we might then also have like a, a legislative simulation about it, 
right? If we, because that we are not the, the city council, but we can pretend in our office, in the office that we are, we might also in a classroom talk about rabies in a structured academic controversy where students are assigned different perspectives and where they gather evidence and they have to represent the perspective that they've been assigned. Again, not to convince, the, not to win, right? They are ultimately gonna try to convince and work together, but not to win a debate but to share a perspective and then come together and say, what is the resolution? What is it that we should do about rabies in our society? And by and learning, anyone, everyone wins. So it's like a win-win-win. <laughs> there you go. And you can put that on a t-shirt. You can put that anyway. up. And for, for those in the social studies scholarly community, this is no joke at all. One of our social studies scholars professors was bitten by a bat at our conference a couple of years ago. So that happened. Seriously? Yeah. Is that real? Yes. So our, we came up with some rather silly examples of deliberation, but you've been obviously doing some critique of this model. Can you tell us a little bit about why and like where you think social studies could go? Sure. In social studies classrooms, so we, the examples that we just gave are silly, including my condo association, but that really would be a place where deliberation, right, whether or not we're going to, which contractor we're going to go with, and it's a shared concern, we're going to navigate our way through it. But often in classrooms, in social studies classrooms, as we think about a lot of the work, uh, particularly from Hess and McAvoy, around political classrooms and discussing controversial issues, that that often comes together in classrooms as let's deliberate about a controversial political issue like immigration policy, like police brutality, like, I mean, those are, those are two powerful examples, right? So teachers might engage in a structured academic uh, controversy in a legislative simulation or another form of deliberation. But what has always made me really uncomfortable is Yes, people have different perspectives on these issues, but these issues are fundamentally about people's humanity, right? Not only about human rights, so we could certainly frame the deliberation in terms of human rights and we can make it very legalistic, but on a more fundamental level, we are asking students to deliberate about people's humanity, right? And then often in a classroom deliberation, we're coming to some kind of solution to a problem, negotiating a solution to a problem where, again, people's humanity is at stake. And that's not often at play in deliberative discussions in classrooms that I've seen, right? And I would love, I would love to see examples where I'm wrong, right? I would welcome that. <laughs> but what, I, what I've seen both in research and in classrooms, for example, seeing, and I think there's a similar example in the Hess and McAvoy book, but I've, I've seen legislative simulations where students are discussing, for example, uh, private prisons, right? Or they're discussing the school to prison pipeline or something like that. And in this debate, someone is bringing up examples of a family member who has been imprisoned or affected by the carceral state in a really personal way. And that becomes just a point of evidence, right? Like here's a point of evidence. And in fact, it's less worthy in a legislative simulation or in a structured academic controversy than something I might find in a scholarly article, a historical artifact that we have revered sources, types of sources, in our discipline and, and understandably why, why particularly in this 
fake news era why we are especially drilling down on helping students understand reliable sources. But for a student who's sharing a personal experience in a deliberation in a classroom, what happens when they do that, right? Is that evidence dismissed? Is the burden on them to teach their classmates about their own experience? Are, are they brushed aside? What if the resolution dismisses their experience, right? What if the resolution that people come to is antithetical to what they're asking for or supporting? And yes, that happens in politics, certainly. But can and should that be happening in schools? Like, what are we communicating to students about whose humanity and perspectives are valued within the classroom? I always have to root this, and I teach at a Jesuit university, and my thinking about justice in particular has been really influenced by uh, Jesuits and their work on justice, and particularly some of the ideas from liberation theology and the work around uh, justice in teaching. And the Jesuits talk about the importance of giving epistemic privilege to the marginalized. And by that they mean that when we are looking at an issue that is a fundamental injustice or a fundamental abandoning of someone's humanity, right? And the Jesuits use different language than that, but I'll use secular language, right? When we're, at, when we're talking about issues and injustices that may fundamentally affect someone's humanity and their rights, the person who, it, who is impacted by that injustice is the person whose voice we should elevate. And that also reminds me of Miles Horton, the civil rights activist and the educator, who would always say that the people with the problem are the people with the solution. And in a classroom deliberation, instead, what we are often doing is saying these are two equal sides, different sides of a perspective, right? And, you know, it might be the right and the left often, as we were you were talking about politics and teaching the election, right? This really simplified binary Here's one side, here's the other. We're going to teach both sides or equal sides, and then we're going to negotiate. On a, on a really visceral level, and I can certainly go into theory about it, but on a visceral level, that seems dangerous to me. Right. Yeah, I, I feel like I've talked to my students about this, and I really appreciate you, the way you articulate it, because I've worried about, like, you know, for example, with talking about transgender bathrooms, which is a political issue that's debated in public, but if we have a student who's transgender in the class and we debate their humanity, as you said, right, like we debate this policy in class, to me, what a harmful space schools can become. And we know schools can be harmful places for students. And so for me, it kind of misses the point of what is the point just for students to be able to make any argument? Because it seems like they are, we have to, in education, have some kind of direction towards justice. And, and if we don't, I don't really know the point, right? Like, what are we developing the social studies skills for? And so I appreciate mm -hmm. that. I'm reading David Blight's massive Frederick Douglass biography that came out this, this last mm -hmm. year. And there's a part in the biography that just really struck me. I didn't know Frederick Douglass was a, wrote a fiction book to kind of address oh, slavery. Wow. And in it, he named his the white abolitionist, Mr. Listwell. And mm. the reason he, la he labeled him that is he said that he wanted, what he wanted from white abolitionists was to listen well. 
to him, to hear him out. He was the one who understood slavery and what should be done about it, like you said. And he wanted people who listened well. And he, his point was, oftentimes that's not what happened, that they talked at him a lot and they told him a lot, the solutions to slavery. Whereas he was enslaved and had, felt like he had, you know, probably better solutions and ideas about it than them. So I, I, I'm trying to remember to be kind of like Mr. Liswell, uh, the character that Frederick Douglass wanted his white co-conspirators to be. And that kind of reminds me a little bit, I think, of, of you know, as a white man, I like me, I have, I have to step back in here and listen to people, not just in classrooms, but in society. Right. And deliberation, it's norms, it's sources of evidence, it's its whole way of being is really rooted in, you know, a white Eurocentric notion of democracy, which certainly that is the, the tradition that is, but it's on the books in our, <laughs> in our nation, right? For good or for bad. So it's understandable how that has become so revered in classrooms, but is that moving us towards practicing democracy for justice? I... Right. I love, I'm, I'm going to have to go read Frederick Douglass's fiction now, Mr. Liswell, <laughs> because I'm, I'm working on a, another piece that I've been working on forever on a listening pedagogy for thinking about what does it mean to take a listening stance in the classroom as a white teacher? How do we move from positions of control, all-knowingness to listening, Right and who gets epistemic privilege in our classrooms, because usually it's the teacher. So what are, what are different approaches that we can use from deliberation that can sometimes put students and discussions in these, these harmful, or just you know, reproducing the, the partisan, poisonous you know, rhetoric and, and politics that happens outside of schools? What other options are there? Yeah, I'm not, so I'm not suggesting that we don't talk or study, the, talk about or study or write about these issues in classrooms. And I'm also not suggesting that there isn't a place for deliberation in a social studies classroom or in a school, right? That is one tool that we have in our democratic toolbox. But what I am suggesting is that we think about, again, to use that phrase, who gets epistemic privilege and how do we teach with that in mind. So for example, critical race theory, one of the tenets of critical race theory is about talking back to endemic racism through counter narratives or counter stories, right? That the voices of the marginalized are amplified, shared, encouraged, and thinking about how do we use that as a guidepost in our classroom. So you shared an example earlier, Dan, of the teacher who said, okay, we're going to teach the wildfires. Let's teach it from the perspective of prison laborers fighting them. Or let's teach them from the perspective of the migrant workers who are still out in the fields farming our fruit, right? Let's privilege their stories. But then thinking about how do we do more than simply inserting their stories into our curriculum? How do we get students to investigate, amplify, share, and particularly for our privileged students, um, whether they're racially or economically privileged, thinking about what might it then look like not just to learn about topics, but to learn how to be a collaborator with communities who have ideas about how to move towards justice, right? How to elevate their voices. So thinking really, so that's one idea, thinking really critically about how do you incorporate counter stories. And then two, thinking about 
other ways and medium of sharing perspectives and talking about social issues. So a lot of we can look at examples from like youth participatory politics, right? Using new media, using social media, thinking about how do I communicate about issues in social media and how do I respond? Thinking about youth participatory action research. How do we engage students in asking questions that matter to them and moving towards solutions? How might they do that with communities themselves, right? How do we teach students to be researchers? before they're ever getting to the point of trying to come up with a solution to a problem, right? So that if we're going to talk about transgender bathrooms in the classroom, instead of just jumping to let's, let's discuss both sides, what are the sides, when one side is asking for recognition of their humanity, how do we go about digging into that side before we ever get to the point of trying to debate or come up with solutions? I think a lot about how gathering oral histories would be a really powerful tool for rethinking deliberation in relation to social issues, right? Gathering voices that are from outside our classroom, gathering voices from other people to bring back and to share their perspectives as evidence, right? And, and, as we're thinking about evidence, because of course, right, it's post-truth, all the news is fake, right? We are so desperately trying to get our students and our citizens to understand evidence, but we also can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And that people's lived experiences of injustice are part of the evidence that we have to use, part of the, the moral and ethical evidence that we have to use as democratic citizens. That's a really powerful vision. You, you mentioned uh, social media. I'll make another reference. I read a, a great book last year by Feminista Jones, who wrote a book called Reclaiming Our Space. And she talked about how like black women had been had done such a good job of using hashtags as a way to highlight inequalities in society and to bring forth new movements. And so I recommend checking out that book. It's a fantastic book overall, recommended my colleague, uh, Dr. Amanda Vickery. And so I really like that, but, but yeah, seeing our, our students' experiences, and especially those who may be marginalized, and, I, and I, I'm very curious about, you know, um, what advice you have for teachers trying to do this work, because I, I see some things that I've, I already am thinking about, like, how do you teach students who bring privilege to learn to listen well, right? I'm still thinking of Mr. Listwell, Frederick mm -hmm. Douglass's Mr. Listwell, like, how do we teach them to really become listeners who hear you know, from people who've ex who have experiences, but then also expand beyond that and look at evidence in other places as a way to, to make a more just society. So I don't know that I talk about this in the article, but when I'm teaching social studies, uh, I frame all my social studies work around a set of core questions that ask us to, whenever we're looking at any text, and we talk about text as being the word and the world, right? Very, I mean, I give my shout out to Paulo Freire in that everything I do is really rooted in his understanding of, of reading the word and the world. Um, but so I start with a set of core questions that we practice looking at any text and asking whose perspective is represented in this text? What's the evidence that they give us for their perspective? How would this story be different if told from another perspective? Right? What if we put those two perspectives in conversation with one another? 
what might that look like? But we also ask, along with if I were to backtrack, so whose perspective does this represent? What is the evidence that they use? Can we trust this evidence? And then whose, how would this story or this text be different if told from another perspective? And so kind of like you mentioned some questions at the beginning that reminded me of this, and I, I often call these my, my core questions of critical social studies, that we are learning to think about whose voice is represented and whose voice needs to be included. And that's a really important precursor to being able to listen, right, is to recognize, for example, the pattern of whose stories are being told in our textbooks. I actually used to do this my first year teaching in Mexico when I was pregnant and finishing my dissertation. And I would say I was a pretty mediocre seventh grade social studies teacher. And we had the History Alive curriculum. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to teach this textbook critically. So that was what we would dissect each unit with those questions. And they did amazing work, right? They would. They wrote back to the textbook from the perspectives of serfs instead of the feudal lords. And they... Um, they did all sorts of investigations of trying to figure out what would a different perspective be on what's being represented in this textbook. So I feel like that's a really important starting point with our privileged students, is recognizing the patterns of whose voices get heard. Melissa Gibson, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? Sure. You can actually find me online either through the Marquette University College of Education's website, but it is probably going to direct you to my personal website, which is melissaleegibson.com, where I try to keep it up to date with my academic research, as well as I have a very infrequent personal blog on that website that is sort of a, mi a mishmash of personal essay, political commentary, parenting notes, <coughs> travelogue. <laughs> It sounds very exciting. Yeah. Yeah, but it's very, it's not regular. I've, I've, I write it for myself and then share it. It's always on my goal list each academic year to make this a regular, a regular practice. So maybe this will be the year. Well, if you have any questions about this episode, we would like to encourage you to go find the oldest blog post on Melissa's site and comment and ask them there, and she will be sure to respond. Just kidding. You can just... <laughs> email her your questions so but yeah thank you yeah. so much for joining us today we will get all we will get your website and your email any other contact information you want to share in the show notes and we certainly hope to continue the discussion online possibly in your blog and in other spaces at the visions of education podcast we're all about sharing the learning if you're doing something fun or creative in education or you just want to chat and really you do hit us up at visions of ed we're on twitter we're on Facebook sometimes, and if you haven't already, and come on, subscribe to Visions of Education Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you want us to be. If you read us a five-star review, then we'll read it on the air. No deliberation included. Just read it, line by line. And before we end this episode, we've got to thank... Zach Seitz of Wiley High School and the University of North Texas for his outstanding editing skills. Thanks, Zach. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Peak. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing on.
Do, 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 do. <laughs> talking, talking food with Michael and Dan. Today's guest, 